First John chapter 2 is our place for tonight as we uh, look at a, another aspect of our, our theme this morning as we consider John chapter 10 and the, the idea of the atonement of Christ, for whom did Christ die, the design of the atonement, and tonight we'll pick up a passage that is sometime considered to be uh, difficult and has confused people when there's really no, no good need for that. So hopefully after tonight you won't be confused by it if you have been in the past. And when you address your friends who, who live in that state, you can help them through it. I'll read the first six verses and then we're going to focus on verse 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father... Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his perfect word tonight. Father, we thank you for your perfect word and ask that you'd be pleased to, to use this time this evening for our good, for your glory, that we might be of help to instruct others as we go into this world and we encounter folks out there and uh, that they might, because we've grown in grace, also grow in grace. We ask this in Jesus' lovely name. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, John 10, for those, some of you were not here this morning, we looked at those first 18 verses in general, but but picked up on those themes that are there of Christ, the specificity with which uh, the Lord Jesus Christ died for his people, came to lay down his life for the people. He came for the sheep. He came for my own sheep. Can't get more specific than that. Uh, all through 10, 1 through 18, the definite article is applied to the sheep. That Those possessive pronouns, my own, mine, my, all, there remind us of for whom he laid down his life. And as I said near the end, laying down his life was understood in the general context of that time as it, as it is today, that if someone's willing to lay down their life, they're willing to die. And that's exactly what Christ was saying. This we looked at because we've come to the L in Tulip. So having considered man's desperate condition, his is being dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people can't do anything for themselves. The only hope for them is that they are among the elect that God chose from eternity. We saw that in chapter 9 of, of Romans. And, uh, and then those elect have to have everything done for them. And so it was decreed by God the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, that the Son would come and take on flesh and do everything we needed. And among that is the atonement. And so uh, this evening I thought it would be good for us to, uh, 
to look at another portion that teaches the same doctrine of the nature of, the design of God's atoning death of his son. Because there are some verses in the Bible that, that give people a bit of a stop when they hear us talk about Christ dying specifically for people. That he came to save his people from their sins. You know, sometimes I use that with people and they'll say, well, I believe he died for everyone. And I'll say, well, you know, I'm just quoting Matthew 121. So, you know. Just so you know, God said he came to save his people from their sin. Well, then I believe everybody. Christ came to save everybody then. Because we're all his people. And then you've got a dilemma, don't you? Then if, if God intended to save everyone... Poor, pitiful God, he didn't pull it off. Because hell is filled with people. And you say, oh, but that's because people can choose. Oh, so we're stronger than God. Our desire outweighs God's desire. He, we're sovereign, not God. This passage helps us with some of those uh, common problems people have because it really sorts out that in the end, you really only have two positions to hold on for whom did Christ die. He either died for the elect, his people, the sheep, my own, as he called them, or he died for everyone. And in the end, no one will be lost. Which, as you know, liberals love that one. Even non-Christian liberals love that one. Even non-Christian conservative, fiscal, political conservatives love that one. Oh yes, I just believe we're all good and so whatever God's going to do, he's going to do something nice for everyone. And then again, you've still got the biblical problem of that's not what the Bible says. So, let's look at this. Really simple, two questions. What is atonement? Because it's important to know what atonement is before we determine uh, what we're going to believe about this this idea of limited atonement. Atonement is one of those words that's used quite often by Christians. And so we should know what it means. I remember uh, a professor of mine used to love to ask students when they would ask questions in class, not to stunt the the, the, the questions, not to stymie the class in any way, but to be sure that they knew what they were doing, he would ask them to define certain words that they used in the question so he knew they knew what they were asking and he knew what they were asking. And then if they didn't know how to define a word that they used, then he'd say, well, let's start this way. Let's go and you go define that word first so that we all know what the word means. And then I'll try to answer your question. So what does atonement mean? You know, you hear cute little answers for a lot of theological terms. Well, atonement means just, just hyphenate it. It's at-one-ment. And while that sounds cute and looks cute, and there's a sense in which it, it makes us at one with God, that's not what it means. And so just leave that one on the shelf. Uh, in fact, put it... Take it off the shelf and put it in the trash can and don't do that one again. That's kind of like uh, trying to just tell people 
what the Trinity is. And we start pulling out all sorts of silly, human, earthy analogies and they all fail because they come from us instead of from God. Atonement. Atonement and its cognates are used in the scriptures 94 times, all in the Old Testament. The one appearance of the word atonement you'll find in the authorized version, if you're looking in the English version only. And that occurs in Romans 5.11. So it doesn't help us to talk about atonement per se if you're just going to look for the word atonement and say, well, it's not that important because it's only one time in the New Testament and that one time was in an old archaic King James Version English translation. And now that we're more, more uh, linguistically sophisticated, we know that better words exist, and so we don't use that word anymore. Although, atonement still used throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament word means to cover up something, to reconcile parties, to appease, to amend a tear, to propitiate, to expiate. Those are all the, the meanings of kafar. In the New Testament, the idea is expressed simply in those last two words I used, propitiation and expiation. Propitiation, expiation. So the fact that atonement doesn't appear in, in our modern translations, whether it's the New American Standard or, or the New King James or the ESV, which we use here in our public worship, uh, it doesn't mean that... that uh, that some liberal theologians have been involved in the translation of the ESV and the NASB and the New King James, and therefore they took the atonement out of it. Because the words propitiation, expiation still run through the New Testament documents. So then we have to say, okay, well then what do expiation and propitiation mean? And sometimes translations like the New International Version tried to kind of explain them, and in so doing they didn't get them very well. And so the ESV came back, the translator said, you know what, the New International Version just really doesn't get at this very well. Let's just, let's just use the words and we will trust the people, trust the people, trust the men in the pulpit, trust the readers of the Bible to do their work and know what these words mean. We were this afternoon reading C.S. Lewis. We've been reading on Sunday afternoons uh, Mere Christianity and C.S. Lewis uh, in book four, I think it is, picks up the address of theology and the importance of studying theology. And he says that people say, oh, you can't, can't study theology. People don't want to know theology. They don't want to and he says, do we really think most people are that stupid, that they're really foolish, that they really can't know what words mean. And I can't be nearly as sarcastic as C.S. Lewis is in about two paragraphs where he just tongue lashes the, the ignorant people who don't want us using words like expiation and propitiation. I'll, I'll just trust you to go read if you haven't. You can't go to heaven without having read mere Christianity, so just, you know, just get it done as soon as possible. Uh, no, seriously, if you haven't read mere Christianity, that should be the next book on your list uh, to read. And so, uh, 
you'll, you'll, you'll get C.S. Lewis at his best there in book four. So what do expiation, propitiation mean? Well, expiation, you always begin with the words beginning in X, and you got X, out of, from. And so, and both words, expiation, expiation and propitiation, come out of the same, same uh, word group. And so it means to be taken out of, out of sin, to be re- for the penalty of sin to be removed from. And then propitiation involves the concept of appeasing Anger, appeasing wrath. We saw both of those up there in the Old Testament meaning of of atonement. When I read through to reconcile parties, to appease parties, to amend a tear, to propitiate, expiate. So it means to take the sin problem out. But not only take the sin problem out, because listen... If Jesus had only taken the sin problem out on the cross, we would have soon quickly put it back in the equation. Right? So it was not only taking the sin problem out, but also appeasing the wrath of the Father for our sins. And that's, that's what you get at with propitiation. Those of you who have been around Covenant for some time, you've heard me use this J.I. Packer line where he talks about propitiation as the great wrath absorption. That Jesus Christ, in dying on the cross, absorbed the wrath of the Father. And that's propitiation. He not only did the technical thing of taking the penalty and guilt of sin away... But he also took the wrath that it deserves away. So that's atonement. That's what Christ did when he, when he died on the cross. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is because the wrath of the holy, holy, holy Godhead was falling on him on the cross. The darkness, that was... That was the judgment of God falling upon Christ for all his people. That's what the atonement is. And by the way, that's what everyone in this room would have to look forward to. That is the wrath of God falling on us. The sky turning dark. The feeling of total abandonment by God and all of his creatures and creation if we had to face his wrath on our own. But praise God, Christ did it for us. That's atonement. So, when we talk about limited or particular atonement, we start talking about, well, what was the design of this atonement? For whom did Christ absorb the wrath? For whom did Christ take the penalty of guilt and, and, and our corruption away? For whom did he do all this? And that, as I said this morning, and is the lead-in tonight, that's where some of the confusion comes in. It's because people don't understand what, what it means for Christ to atone for sin, to appease the wrath, being right there in the front of it. They can very easily get the for whom question wrong. And because there are some passages that use words like all in them, 
or world in them, people can sometimes forget to consider the whole organic unity of the Bible to help us understand these passages. We're back to that, that very basic interpretive rule. Scripture interprets Scripture. And people like to isolate Scripture, don't they? Every cult is built on Scripture isolation. You take one little passage or two or three little passages and put them together and you ignore the whole total rest of Scripture. And you've got a cult. Or a world religion. Or you've got somebody that claims they don't need the church. John's got one of those in 1 John. Pastor considered this when he worked through it. John says, because the Holy Spirit's given, we no longer need teachers. And so people say, I don't need the pastor. I don't need the elders. I don't need anyone to teach me. The Bible says so right there. And off they go to play golf on Sunday and go watch the Titans on Sunday afternoon and and who knows what else they go to do on, on the Lord's Day. Because they read one passage, yanked it completely out of the context of the whole of Scripture, even out of the context of 1 John, and they've created their own little cult, the cult of self. So, we don't want to do that. So what is John saying here? Well, notice how he couches it. My little children, he begins with that wonderful favorite term of his, a term of endearment, this little child that we are. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I mean, John's desire all through the book is that we would be people of holiness, not sinning. But then he knows fully well that though the penalty of sin has been taken care of, the power of sin has been taken care of, we don't have to sin, that temptations sometimes overtake us, sometimes willfully we enter into sin. And when we do, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the righteous. So we have Christ on our side as sinners. So you sit here just for a moment. Let me kind of run off on a little tangent here. You know, sometimes if you're not careful, if you're around really holy people, and occasionally I encounter them, or sometimes you're around self-righteous people, and you get the feeling that, my goodness, I don't know how to think of myself. I'm a terrible sinner compared to them. Maybe I'm not a Christian. And so John, dealing gently with his little children here, says, no, keep this in mind. If you, I'm writing these things so that, so that you may not sin. You don't have to. But when you do, you have the answer already. You don't have to look at yourself for the answer. You don't have to look at others. Christ's the righteous one is the answer. And then he says, he, this Christ, this righteous one, he is the propitiation for our sins. 
Now here's where the difficulty comes. Here's where the question of design of the atonement comes. Everything would have been really easy right there for most people if John had just stopped talking at that point. He's the propitiation for our sins. We just said our sins. He's talking to the church, the gathered saints here in this, in this part of the world where he's, he's writing to this church. And, and so he's talking about the saints, the elect who have believed and shown their faith in Christ. But then he, then he says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And there's where the question comes. What does John mean by the sins of the whole world? And of course you know, as I've already prefaced this, people take that and say, oh, so this means Christ died to save everyone. So the atonement must have been effective for everyone. Because after all, he's talking about atonement. He says he's the propitiation for our sins. So he must be talking about everyone, the whole world, people in the whole world, sins of the whole world. That's what he must be talking about. Well, as I said this morning, it's always good to come back and And look at those specifics like the sheep and my own sheep. And in this passage, look at the word that we have here for propitiation. What does propitiation mean? And propitiation means that he has absorbed the wrath of God. So is John saying here he's absorbed the wrath of God for every person on the earth? Not just ours, but people everywhere on the earth, throughout the world. Because that's how it's read, isn't it? That's how people take it. Oh, he died for everyone. And so we come back, propitiation, the wrath of God. You do see that if Jesus died for every sinner as a substitutionary atoning work that that means he took away the wrath of God and if he took away the wrath of God for everyone then the question becomes how do you trust the rest of the Bible because listen to what Jesus said if your eye causes you to sin tear it out it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes To be thrown into hell. Well, wait a minute. Jesus, didn't you even know that you were dying a propitiatory death so that people wouldn't have to go to hell? In fact, there is no hell. What is hell except the wrath of God enduring forever and ever upon those for whom grace has not been shed? Listen to this. How could he say, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's talking about God here. How could Jesus say that? Fear God because he'll get you. If you don't fear God, you'll go to hell. When Jesus knew fully well he's going to the cross 
to die to absorb the wrath of God for every individual that would ever live on this earth. There wouldn't be a place called hell. What's wrong with Jesus? Why would he mislead people like this? How could God say at the near the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, if Christ appeased the wrath of God for the sins of every person who ever lived on the face of the earth, then there's no ground for God to punish anyone in hell. And so all those passages, and I've just read a sampling. You know your New Testament well enough to know that it's, it's replete with passages like this. And Jesus said most of them. God would be unjust for after all Jesus paid the penalty for everyone's sin. To say you believe Christ atoned for every sin and to say you believe in hell is to impugn God's righteous character. You couldn't possibly have done one and there still be the other. You put God frankly in the category of Allah if you hold this view. An unjust God, a whimsical God, a God who makes decisions not on his righteous deeds in Christ Jesus, but, well, I just feel like today this would, this could be what I'll do. Since we've seen the whole world cannot possibly be a reference to every single individual who ever lived, for if it did mean that, then the scripture contradicts itself. We're back to for whom did Christ appease the wrath of the Father? For whom did Christ pay the penalty of sin? And so let's just let the scriptures tell us this one more time. Starting in Matthew one twenty one, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's particular. That's specific. John 10, this morning, a part of our reading, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So who are these sheep? Well, earlier in John chapter 6, Jesus told us who they are. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And when did the Father give them to Christ? Well, we saw that last week from before the foundation of the world. Romans 9 and Ephesians 1. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
And then he prayed to his father. In John 17, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. The people whom you gave me. Again, this is back to being of the sheep. Having Christ ownership on us. And then Christ said, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. For they are yours. You see, when you start looking at the scriptures, and here again I've just picked out a few select passages in the New Testament to show us that if we want to interpret scripture with scripture, it's easy really, isn't it, to understand this passage. John's talking to a church here. To a gathered group of saints. And he says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, the wrath absorber of our sins, but not just ours. And this is a good reminder to us, not just to this little small flock here gathered tonight, not to the larger flock gathered this morning, not to all the saints on the earth living right now, but for those on the whole earth, regardless of when they lived, his sheep, his own possession. R.L. Dabney summarizes the doctrine well. He says this, In a word, Christ's work for the elect does not merely put them in a salvable state, but purchase for, purchases for them a complete and assured salvation. The work of Christ didn't just make salvation possible, folks. It settled the issue. It's remarkable, isn't it? Christ and the triune Godhead choose from before the, the, the foundation was laid of this earth. And then Christ came and, and did exactly what he needed to do to be sure that every one of those would be saved. And as we're going to see next week, under that eye of the tulip, irresistible grace, that's speaking to the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Father loved from eternity. The Son loved from eternity and came into time and space and procured our salvation. Not made it possible, but procured it. And then we'll see next week that the Holy Spirit then comes and applies it to every individual during the course of history so that no one falls through the cracks. It's a wonderful and glorious plan. No other religion, no cult has a plan of salvation that's thorough and certain. None. But historic Christianity. God chose whom he would save. He then sent his son to save them. And he died for the sheep. He laid down his life. For the sheep. Folks, listen. You're loved with an infinite love. And it's not your husband for you, or your wife for you, or your children for you, or your parents for you children. Our love is finite, 
Our love can even be fickle on this earth, even among families. But you're loved with an infinite love by the infinite, inexhaustible, immutable, triune God. That's the reason Paul says we're more than conquerors and no one can take us from him. Amen. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us so personally. Thank you for your son coming with our name written on his own body that he might save us from our sins. Now, Father, as we prepare to go, we pray that you would lift our voices to you in praise and give us joy in going forth this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.